Hey, this is Cody Turner. In this episode, I speak with Professor Rowan Lockwood. Dr. Lockwood is professor and chair of the geology department at the College of William & Mary. She received her BA from Yale University and then her PhD from the University of Chicago. Dr. Lockwood's research exists in the domains of paleobiology and paleoontology. In particular, the overall goal of her research is to understand how extinction and environmental change influences the evolution and ecology of fossil marine invertebrates. When I was an undergraduate at William & Mary, I took a course of Professor Lockwood's, which was entitled Age of Dinosaurs, and I loved this course, and I found Professor Lockwood to be an excellent teacher. Here she was kind enough to have a conversation with me about all things dinosaurs, well, most things dinosaurs. And in addition to this conversation, we also talk about some of the research that Dr. Lockwood has conducted on extinction events. So, let's take a ride through Jurassic Park. Buckle those seatbelts, kiddos, for I give you Professor Rowan Lockwood. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm Podcast Network, a place to talk the rain away. With your host, Cody Turner. There's a storm coming, Mr. Wayne. I was wondering if you could just kind of provide a chronology of your evolution as an academic. When did you know you wanted to become a scientist and in particular study geology and paleobiology? Uh, sure. So if you had told me in high school that I was going to become a scientist, I would not have believed you. Um, I didn't enjoy science. I wasn't particularly good at it. Um, I really, I guess I started um, trying it in high school, but then it was college and grad school where I really got into it. So I would say in middle school and early high school, I thought that science was really all about filling out, I don't know, data sheets and following recipe book chemistry labs. And I thought it was incredibly deathly dull and it was a lot of rote memorization and I wasn't very good at that. And so um, I had gone to a, a school that was specialized in science and math, mainly just because my local school was a problem. So I'd gone to a magnet school. And one of the things that this magnet school required was a year's worth of research before you graduated. And so um, I thought to myself, oh, my God, how am I going to pull this off? I can't do a, a year's worth of science research. And um, the biology teacher I had at the time suggested that I take a look at paleontology. Um, I said, what's the closest science to history? And he said, well, it's paleontology. And so I um, started looking at potential projects there, discovered there was really a lot of overlap between how we study history and how we study paleontology. And I started doing a project on pterosaurs, um, which is the scientific name for pterodactyls, and how they took off or whether they were able to, to take off from the ground. And um, I had just a blast with this project. It, it spiraled into an internship at the Smithsonian, into a collaboration with a local woman at um, Northern Illinois University. And it was really different than the science that I had been doing in the classroom. Um, turns out I was better at it, but it was also a lot more creative and a lot more fun than what I thought science was. And so I went off to college really thinking I would major in history. I changed my major five different times um, and in the end, I found myself trying to do history from a more scientific standpoint. I kept asking my history professors, like, well, what's the hypothesis here and what data do we have? And they finally said, oh, go away and, you know, be a science major. I'd, I'd made that transition in high school without even really realizing it. 
Um, and so I, I, I think I kind of came late to sciences and I didn't really get interested in it until the end of high school, the beginning of college. Even then, I didn't want to admit that I was a scientist. Um, and it wasn't until the end of college that I was like, okay, you know, maybe I do like the science stuff. Maybe I'm better at it than I thought I was. That's cool. Yeah, I was reading a little bit on pterosaurs in preparation for this podcast, and I read that they used to, to fly, they used their arms to kind of push off the ground. So that's what you were working on? Yeah, so back time? then there was a big active debate over whether pterosaurs were um, bipedal, in other words, whether they stood on two legs or quadrupedal, standing on four legs. And so I had been playing around with some really simplistic mathematical models of, of how they might have taken off from two legs versus four and how much muscle mass that would have required and that sort of thing. And um, I've sort of left that area of paleontology behind, but the research has continued with lots of other folks. And I think we're now in a position where we can say, I think pretty strongly that they, they were almost bat-like when they were moving on the ground. And when they took off, they did push off in part from their arms. So yeah, I have vague it's, images it's of we, Jurassic Park. Expect. Uh, just bumbling into consciousness of pterosaurs, I think. But and I want to get to that and the how it, how and if the media representation of dinosaurs is actually faithful to what we think dinosaurs were like. But before we get there, uh, you mentioned paleontology. Could you just define what exactly paleontology is and also how it relates to and how it's different from paleobiology? Uh, sure. So paleontology is just the study of fossils, um, and we define fossils as any trace of a living organism that's sort of at least 10,000 um, at least 10,000 years old. And so paleontologists might use fossils to answer all sorts of different research questions. A paleobiologist is a specialist within paleontology and they're more focused on biologically oriented questions, getting at questions of evolution, ecology, um, development, uh, taxonomy, those sorts of questions rather than some of the the applications of, of fossils that involve geological questions. Yeah, so you have this interesting article that I checked out, which is called Integrating Paleobiology, Archaeology, and History to Inform Biological Conservation. And I thought, I just kind of skimmed it, but I thought that was a really fascinating article about how a multidisciplinary perspective can shed light on an issue. So um, I was wondering if you could just expand upon that. So in that article, my understanding is that you use the eastern oyster fishery of the Chesapeake Bay to demonstrate how these different disciplines can come together to inform uh, biological preservation, and, and in that case, the preservation of oysters. So I was wondering, uh, how exactly do those disciplines yield a more holistic perspective on biological conservation? Is it more um, those disciplines deal with different time periods? So it's a matter of like string together all these different time periods, or is it a matter of um, different levels of analysis from like a micro scale to a macro scale, or is it both? It's kind of both. Um, so that's a project that I worked on with Torben Rick, who is a um, archaeobiologist at the Smithsonian. And he and I are both interested in oysters in the Chesapeake Bay. We're interested in sort of their long-term history, but also how humans have interacted with their populations. And so he's looking at it from more of an archeological perspective. I'm going all the way back into the fossil record, but a lot of the questions we ask are the same. We just answer them using slightly different tools. So it's been a really fun project because I get to learn a little bit more about archeology span and how archeologists approach this kind of question. Um, and he's gotten to learn the same, 
but from a paleontological perspective. Um, I would say that that archaeology involves a little bit more sort of qualitative work, a little bit more descriptive work, um, more sort of social science approaches than paleontology. Paleontology is more um, sort of natural science approach where we're trying to quantify a lot of what we're doing. Same questions, just a different way of, of answering them. And are, does archaeology not deal with the prehistoric record? It only deals with more recent history. Is that right? So um, if you think about the, the term prehistoric, it's basically before written world or written word. And so um, Tori's very interested in the Native American history um, of the oyster in and around the Chesapeake Bay. So his um, interest is going back 14,000 years and I'm going back millions of years. So he's really looking at sort of that interval of time where Native Americans were were fishing the um, oyster resource. Um, I would say historians are going to look at colonial age right. and younger, and then paleontologists are going to look um, sort of beyond uh, 14,000 years. That's okay. sort of how it divides up. Yeah, so I want to kind of take a deeper dive into the prehistoric record as it relates in particular to dinosaurs. And then after that, maybe uh, when we get to the ex KT extinction, talk about some of the work that you've done on extinction. Um, so yeah, like I said, I just went back and reviewed the PowerPoint slides from the age of dinosaurs to draft some of these questions. I can't believe you so, still have those slides. That's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> They're still there. So I guess first, uh, just a question about the origins of dinosaur science. When did dinosaur science originate? And what are some of the major breakthroughs in the history of dinosaur science? My understanding is that all of this started in 1842 with a gentleman named Richard Owen. Uh, yeah, you could give Owen a little bit of uh, a little bit of credit. Um, he ironically didn't do a lot of the hands-on dinosaur research himself. So I would actually go back even further. So the, the first evidence we have that humans interacted with dinosaur bones. It actually comes from South Africa. Um, it comes from places in Australia where we have evidence that indigenous peoples were discovering dinosaur bones and they were interacting with dinosaur bones. The first true scientific study started in the early 1800s in England with Gideon Mantell and his wife, um, who both were, dis were working on um, some of these early dinosaurs that were discovered in England. They were the first folks to um, to really write about and to study these dinosaurs. But the first official scientific publication, um, that breakthrough happened with a, a guy by the name of Buckland a few years later. And so Buckland drew up a, a gorgeous rendition of um, something called a megalosaur jaw. And then he published that. And so Buckland actually wins the award for the first sort of published scientific work on dinosaurs. Owen named them, but okay. he didn't actually he didn't actually publish on them. Am I remembering correctly and thinking that before dinosaur science originated, people thought that these bones indicated the existence of a griffin or something like that or other mythological creatures? Yeah, so um, great memory. So there is a historian actually at the University of Virginia who hypothesizes that a lot of the um, myths in a variety of different human cultures, a lot of them derive from people finding fossils and then trying to explain them. And so um, her name is Adrienne Mayer. Her work is absolutely fascinating. And she's applied this sort of concept to a lot of different cultures. So, for example, she has um, speculated that the early fossils of um, uh, of things like mammoths and mastodons 
confused the Greeks and is part of the reason why Greeks developed the myths of Cyclops. So the giant skulls of these elephant-like fossils, they look a little bit like Cyclops. And so she has hypothesized that that's where the myth of the Cyclops comes from. Um, she's also that's hypothesized cool. that um, the griffin actually originated from um, sort of protoceratops, very small um, horn-faced dinosaurs that were being discovered in the Gobi Desert. Their remains were, um, and tails of their remains were coming out of the, um, the Atlas Mountains. And she has hypothesized that um, those peoples that found them, they started telling tales to try to explain what they were and that that was the evolution of the griffin. And we know that the Greeks began writing those myths down and the Greeks sort of um, spread those myths much more widely but she's tracked them to this area next to the Gobi Desert where she thinks the myth actually originated from. Some of those dinosaurs and those parts of dinosaurs and those stories um, being spread along sort of the ancient silk routes and the ancient silk road, she thinks that um, that's, that's part of where some of these myths come from. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, so in <laughs> thinking about that, it's almost like really hard to think about the time scale here here in terms of millions of years. So I just want to uh, get your input on the different eras in which dinosaur dinosaurs lived. So sure. my, they all lived during the Mesozoic era, and this they can did. be broken up into three periods, Triassic, Jurassic, and Cretaceous. Yep. When I was doing research, it said that they spanned the Earth for over 170 million years before their sudden demise, which is just insane when you think about how long we've been around Homo sapiens yeah. have been around for like 200,000 years. So they really dominated this place uh, much longer than we have thus far. So yeah, I, I guess- just, I, uh, love, I love thinking of geologic time as like a um, a clock or a football field. And no matter how you slice it, humans have been around for a very short span of time. And we've had this like incredible impact on the planet, but we've been yeah. here for like a blink of an eye when it comes to actual earth history time. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess, uh, what, what is the justification for distinguishing between these different periods? And uh, the, the Triassic, the Jurassic, the Cretaceous, the Cretaceous, what are the differences between them? Sure. So um, our modern geologic timescale, it actually first got its origins with a guy by the name of William Smith, who was working in the UK back in the early 1800s. He was a canal engineer, so he was digging canals and inspecting canals all around the UK. And he started noticing the same sequence of stratigraphic units. He would see a coal layer. He would see a red bed layer. And he started realizing that they occurred in the same sequence in different areas in the UK. He started realizing that those stratigraphic layers had their own fossils in them and that those fossils were the same from place to place. And then he started realizing that he could actually map out some of these, these geologic units, both in space. So he was one of the first people to develop a geologic map. And that map is still up, um, I believe, at the Royal Society location in central London. He wrote or beautifully drew up one of the um, the most accurate geologic maps at that time. And we still refer to it today. But he also started introducing the idea of a geologic timescale. And so he began to break geologic history into specific chunks. And those specific chunks are usually delineated by changes in fossils. So those eras that you talked about, so you mentioned yeah. the Mesozoic when the dinosaurs were around, but the era before that is the Paleozoic, and the era after that is the Cenozoic. And so most of life as we know it um, popped up about 
540 million years ago. So those three, three eras, the Paleozoic, the Mesozoic, and the Cenozoic, they're bounded by big mass extinctions, big changes in the fossils that you can see in these chunks of rock. And then in subsequent years, we've divided those eras into smaller intervals, and those intervals into even smaller intervals. Um, we're constantly dating, getting new dates, getting more highly resolved dates for those intervals. But that geologic time scale, it's kind of like a, a language that allows geologists to talk about geologic time around the world and throughout um, all of Earth history. We all refer to the same time periods we're all updating the dates on those time periods. And so you can talk about whether you study Jurassic aged dinosaurs or Pleistocene aged oysters and other geologists know what you're talking about just in using those, those terms. Um, right. Most of those terms are named after places where rock of that age is common. So if right. you think about some of these terms like um, Jurassic comes from the Jura mountains in mm -hmm. Europe. Um, the Devonian comes from the Devon of England, uh, there are all sorts of uh, the Mississippian, Mississippian aged rock is common in Mississippi. Pennsylvanian aged rock is common in Pennsylvania. So a lot of those names actually come from locations where rock of that age is is common. Yeah. So just on the on the topic of dating rocks, my understanding again from the PowerPoint slides is that there's two <laughs> there's two methods here. There's absolute dating and there's relative dating. Um, could you just say a bit more about that. Absolute dating uses uh, or it studies the steady decay of isotopes. I have a vague memory of all this, but there, are those, okay. those are it's, the it's two. It's been a while. You're, you're, a while. you're allowed to, yeah, you're allowed to replace all that dinosaur info with philosophy info. So, um, you know, geologists, we take two approaches to dating, what's called relative dating and absolute dating. So relative dating is when you can say that a rock or a fossil is older or younger than another one. So for example, the oysters that I study are much younger than the dinosaurs that you learned about. Right. Um, and you're not putting an exact date on it, you're just saying older or younger. So that's relative dating. Um, absolute dating is when you can put an exact number on how old a rock or a fossil is. Um, and the we have a few different ways of doing that. The predominant way that geologists do that is through what's called radiometric dating. And so radiometric dating relies on the fact that um, a lot of rocks and some fossils are made of unstable isotopes. So isotopes are different kinds of atoms. Some of them are unstable. Those unstable isotopes, they, they break down. They decay to form stable isotopes, and they do that at a very specific rate. So if you've got a rock or a fossil and you know how much unstable and stable isotope it has in it, and you know how fast that rate is, you can calculate how old the rock is. Is that rate what's known as the half-life? Mm -hmm. Yep, so the half-life is basically how long it takes for half of the unstable isotopes in a system to decay into stable isotopes. And so that rate can be measured in the lab, and that rate doesn't change over time. It's subject to the laws of physics. So we know those half-lives. We can measure the amount of stable versus unstable isotopes, and we can use those to, to get at the age of different different rocks. When did this, when was this technology developed? Ooh, good question. Um, I don't know off the top of my head. I'm, I'm hypothesizing probably the 50s and the 60s as we got better at understanding um, these decay processes and then developing better instruments to measure them in the lab. Um, the most common application that the public knows about is radiocarbon dating. 
Mm. So carbon dating is just another form of radiometric dating, but carbon dating can only be used with um, fossils that are about 40,000 years old or younger. So it's not actually useful for dinosaurs. We use a whole other set of, of techniques when it comes to calculating the age of the rocks that dinosaurs are preserved in. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so honing in now on dinosaurs and different kinds of dinosaurs. Well, first, where did dinosaurs evolve from? My research suggests that we don't know where they evolved from in terms of time and place because the earliest dinosaur remains that we have are from multiple different species, but that the most likely suspect is what's called a thecodont. Is, is that right? Has the science progressed since then? The science has progressed. So actually just in the last, um, I would say, five or ten years, there's a, a group of, um, I would call them a group of archosaurs that... Um, I want to talk about archosaurs too. Okay. A group of archosaurs called um, Silosaurids, and the Silosaurids, um, it turns out that they are global in extent. They first evolve in the mid to late Triassic, and they are thought to be kind of the closest immediate relative to dinosaurs. So you have dinosaurs, then you have these Silosaurids, and then a little bit further down the tree, you have things like pterosaurs. And even further down the tree, you have things like crocodiles. So just in recent years, these Silosaurids, um, we're finding more and more of them. They have a global distribution. Um, so I don't know off the top of my head what our current thoughts are on sort of where dinosaurs evolved, but um, what they evolved from is is the common ancestor of Silosaurids and dinosaurs. Um, and the timing of that is sort of mid to late Triassic. Okay. Yeah, so I was trying to... Just in terms, again, with the goal of dividing up the conceptual landscape with respect to dinosaurs, I was trying to wrap my head around the dinosaur phylogenetic tree. Yeah. Because I feel like in the popular imagination, people just associate any reptilian prehistoric creature as a dinosaur without realizing that there are distinctions between a pterosaur, for example, and a dinosaur. Um, um, So am I right in thinking that there's archosaurs and within within the family of archosaurs there's there's pterosaurs and dinosaurs and crocodiles crocodiles and other reptiles and those all exist within the broad i don't know what to call it family of archosaurs um is that right just that so taxonomically this is above the level of family but you have the general idea so there are archosaurs you can divide archosaurs into two big groups the group that led to the crocodilians and the group that eventually led to the dinosaurs and going in the direction of the dinosaurs, we see pterosaurs branch off, we see these silosaurids branch off, and then we finally see dinosaurs and birds mm. branch off from that. Um, okay. And one thing I do have to point out here, so um, I am by no means a dinosaur expert. I teach a course on dinosaurs, and I um, try to keep up on the dinosaur literature, but it's changing fast. And that's one thing that I really enjoy about teaching this course is that I feel like every few years, um, our understandings, especially our understandings of the origin of dinosaurs, really do shift. Yeah, and I do want to talk about some more of your research, too, so I don't want to linger on dinosaurs too much, <laughs> yeah. but obviously I'm just very interested. <laughs> I could talk about dinosaurs all day. Yeah, so my understanding, honing in, I guess, a bit more, there are two types of dinosaurs. There's the, the lizard-hipped, sor- I'm going to butcher these names, Sorischia, <laughs> and then there's the bird-hipped, Ornith- Ornithischia. So I was wondering whether you could just give um, 
uh, maybe our, just articulate further in the distinction between those two kinds of dinosaurs and then some, give some familiar examples of each kind of dinosaur. Sure. So uh, one of the things I'll say first, I think the, the key to dinosaur names is just to say them really quickly and with confidence. Then, then no one's going to call you on it. Um, yeah, because I certainly, my pronunciation is, is uh, <clears throat> it's always evolving. We'll just say my pronunciation is evolving. So as of right now, there are two main groups of dinosaurs, what we call the Ornithischians, which mm -hmm. means bird-hipped, um, and then the Saurischians, which means lizard-hipped. And one of the um, ultimate ironies of dinosaur science is that it's actually the lizard-hipped dinosaurs that gave rise to birds. So oh, really? wrap, wrap your head around that. That's, uh, that's somewhat problematic for the field. Um, my guess is in the next 10 to 20 years, I would not be surprised if the taxonomy begins to break down, um, if we realize that this dichotomy between lizard-hipped and bird-hipped dinosaurs begins to break down. But as of now, that's the that's the sort of the taxonomy. That's how we classify them. Within the Ornithischians, those are the bird-hipped dinosaurs. You've got things like ankylosaurs, which are the tank dinosaurs, and they're closely related to stegosaurs. The they, are those the ones with the club, uh, with the club tail? Yes, not not all ankylos. Uh, excuse me, not all ankylosaurs have clubs. Um, but yeah, the ones with clubs are classified within ankylosaurs. Okay. And so they're the super, super armored dinosaurs that evolve in the Cretaceous. They're so armored that even their eyelids have a bony covering. Um, and then their closest relative are the stegosaurs. And so the stegosaurs that we're familiar with are the ones with the big plates and the spikes. But there are actually quite right. a few different stegosaurs around the world um, that look a bit different. And then um, also in the group of Ornithischians, we have um, things like the Ceratopsians. So those are the sort of the horned-faced dinosaurs, dinosaurs like Triceratops and mm -hmm. Styracosaurus. Those are both Ceratopsians. Um, then we've also got uh, things like the Ornithopods, and those are duck-billed dinosaurs, also examples of herbivores. Mm -hmm. And then the Pachycephalosaurs, which are the dome-headed dinosaurs or the thickened Scald dinosaurs. Oh yeah, I remember that from Jurassic Park 2, yep. I think, where he just runs into the the, the side Jeep. of the Jeep. Yep. And so oh, the, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. The Pachycephalosaurus and the Ceratopsians are closely related to each other, and then they're next most closely related to the Ornithopods. And all five of those groups together, um, all of those are Ornithischians, um, and they generally represent herbivores. They're the herbivorous dinosaurs. Um, as a rule. And then on the other side, in the lizard-hipped dinosaurs, you've got the sauropods and the prosauropods. So those are the long-necked dinosaurs, the apatosaurus, brontosaurus, brachiosaurus, etc. Um, some of the largest land animals that ever lived. And then the other side is the theropods. And the theropods um, include the meat-eating dinosaurs. In recent years, we've discovered that there are uh, vegetarian theropods too. But most of them are carnivorous, and that was the group that eventually gave rise to birds. Okay. Is it true that raptors were the smartest dinosaurs? Um, you know, it depends on how you define smart. So is brain size um, a good indicator of intelligence? So if you take brain size over, say, body weight, then people speculate that the raptors were quite intelligent. Um, in recent years, uh, we've done a lot of CAT scanning of a variety of different dinosaur skulls, and they are showing us the morphology, the shape, and the size of um, basically of these endocasts, of these dinosaur brains. 
Um, and so right now, people suspect that the raptors were probably the most intelligent. Were they able to open kitchen doors? Were they able to, you know, trick small children? Who knows? Who, who knows? But um, if you're looking at EQ, which is the abbreviation for encephalization quotient, that's just a measure of how big your brain is relative to how big your body is. If you look at EQ, then yeah, the raptors were pretty smart. A heck of a lot smarter than something like Stegosaurus. Mm. Yeah, well, I guess that leads into the larger question that I had, which is, are media portrayals of dinosaurs, generally speaking, faithful to what the science suggests dinosaurs were, ac were actually like? And I'm thinking in particular about Jurassic Park here. Yeah, uh, so um, media portrayals are highly variable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think, so, I think a lot of dinosaurs... Aside for a sec. Yeah, so I think a lot of dinosaur scientists have a love-hate relationship with the media. So... Um, I'll give you my own perspective on it. So I think the original Jurassic Park, the ones that were directed by Spielberg, um, I think Spielberg tried to be somewhat faithful to dinosaur science. He was really the first person to show the American public what modern dinosaurs were thought to look like. And when I say modern dinosaurs, I meant the, the modern view back in the early 90s of how dinosaurs moved and how they behaved. And so he collaborated with a, a dinosaur scientist called Jack Horner. The two of them worked together and Jack Horner kind of, um, I guess, scientifically uh, yayed or nayed some of Spielberg's ideas on the on the original movies. For example, Spielberg wanted to make the velociraptors big, and he did. Those velociraptors in that movie are much bigger than velociraptors were in real life. Um, a real velociraptor is the size of a small collie. And uh, so Spielberg went to Horner and said, hey, these are our velociraptors. And Horner said, those are much too big to be velociraptors. And Spielberg basically said, oh, you paleontologists, you'll discover a raptor that big eventually. Uh, and he was right. So a few field seasons later, dinosaur scientists discovered Utah raptor, which is another raptor, um, which is a raptor from the American West that was bigger than Velociraptor. Um, and it's interesting, if you look at the original first three Jurassic Park films, as our understanding of dinosaur science evolved, the films evolved. So, for example, the T-Rex, it walks differently, it has a slightly different posture, it feeds differently in those different movies. Some of that is to account for how dinosaur science was changing um, while that trilogy was being made. Um, I think I speak for a lot of dinosaur scientists when I say our, our field's pretty disappointed in the Jurassic World movie. So between the release of the three Jurassic Park movies and Jurassic World, um, dinosaur science exploded. So especially as China opened its doors to Western paleontologists and Chinese and Western paleontologists really started collaborating, uh, we discovered many, many examples of feathered dinosaurs. Um, and we've now reached the point where we can say many, many dinosaurs, especially those theropods, those carnivorous ones were feathered. We've even reached the point now where we can figure out what their color was. So you can yeah. find tiny melanosomes preserved and you can reconstruct color. But Jurassic World chose not to incorporate that. So they chose not to change the velociraptors um, and to have them be coated in a fine sort of downy feathering. They chose not to put feathers on T-Rex and we now suspect that T-Rex had feathers. So I think a lot of dinosaur scientists are a little frustrated with the new Jurassic World movies yeah. because they had this great opportunity to update the public again. Um, and part of what really captured the public's attention in the early 90s 
with Jurassic Park was the fact that they didn't know about the science. Right. And Jurassic World is much less of a sort of a scientific blockbuster and much more of just a plain blockbuster. Yeah. Yeah, I was fixated on the color question and thinking about it. And my elementary research suggested that our understanding of dinosaur color is just largely a conjecture based upon color patterns of living reptiles and oh, birds. Not anymore. But you're saying so, that's changed. Oh my gosh, has that changed? Yeah. So I just say like the last five years, we've completely revolutionized our take on dinosaur color. So a number of different scientists have discovered that um, mainly associated with feather, but to some extent dinosaur skin, you get these tiny organelles called melanosomes that are preserved. And these melanosomes contain pigments called melanin. And if you are um, if you are visualizing them under the right microscope systems, you can actually reconstruct what melanosomes occur in which dinosaurs and what colors they represent. So these are colors that are formed not through pigments like paint, but colors that are formed through what we call sort of structural colors. The shape of these melanosomes would have determined the color that these feathers were. So we now have all these wonderful examples. So, um, for example, Cynoceropteryx was a feathered dinosaur that had a uh, candy cane striped tail. It wasn't red and white, but it was um, sort of a rust color and white striping going all the way up the tail. We now know that uh, Microraptor, which is the four-winged feathered dinosaur, um, Microraptor had black iridescent wings, a little bit like a grackle's wings. Mm. Um, we now know that um, Cynornithus had uh, a big bright red crest. And so these melanosomes, they let us get at um, browns, blacks, red kind of colors. They don't let you reconstruct things like blues, um, but they've really gone a long way to helping us figure out not just dinosaur color, but we can figure out color from some other organisms in the fossil record. Um, we can figure out what the color of squid ink used to be and also what some of the colors of beetles used to be wow. using these same kinds of microscope techniques it's astonishing <laughs> yeah it's astonishing how much you can learn about what animals were like millions of years ago another thing that captured my imagination when i was looking through some of this stuff is how much information we can derive based upon the footprints of mm -hmm. dinosaurs right so everything yeah so i guess just expand upon that what, what information can we learn by dissecting dinosaur dino footprints Sure. So, um, I mean, dino footprints have been known for a long time. We know, for example, that indigenous people in South Africa saw them and made petroglyphs, made the equivalent of rock drawings of those dino footprints. So, you know, humans have been wondering about dinosaur footprints and thinking about them for a very long time. Um, in recent years, I think the dinosaur footprint um, community has really exploded with the use of digitization. So you can take these trackways now and you can digitize them in 3D. Um, and with that 3D digitization, you can start to ask biomechanical questions. So, you know, those of you guys who are athletes um, or, you know, folks that have been to a physical therapist, sometimes if you have trouble walking, they'll have you walk across a surface and they'll actually digitally reproduce where you um, where your center of mass is, where your weight is, how your gait works. And right. now through 3D digitization of some of these dinosaurs, we can do the same thing with dinosaurs. It's like Dr. Scholl's, but for the Mesozoic era, you can, you can basically go back and see how dinosaur posture might have changed in their gait, how they might have held 
um, their tail and their upper body based on the sort of track and the distribution of weight on their trackways that they leave behind. Um, so there are all sorts of, I would say, locomotion questions that you can ask, but there are some behavioral questions too. So you can look at the extent to which um, dinosaurs moved in herds, the extent to which those herds had adults and juveniles right. as part of them, um, the extent to which different um, species of dinosaurs moved in the same herds. So there's there's a an aspect of behavior that you can start to get at from dinosaur trackways too. That's cool. What about this myth that humans and dinosaurs co-occurred because their footprints co-occurred? Oh gosh, yeah, I would love I would love to be able to say that dinosaurs and humans co-occurred. Uh, the Flintstones was one of my favorite cartoons when I was a kid, but um, unfortunately we missed dinosaurs. We missed dinosaurs by a good 65 million years. So um, <laughs> in recent years, uh, there have been a lot of study of of these tracks that purport to show human footprints along with dinosaur footprints. So there are a couple of famous trackways, especially in Texas, where people have speculated that dinosaurs and um, human footprints are preserved together. Uh, many of those are actually forgeries. So people have gone in there and they have sculpted human footprints to make it look like they are tracks that are preserved in the same, um, in the same layer. Uh, it turns out some of those forgeries are really badly done with extra um, knuckles and things like that that human feet don't have um, and then the remaining ones turn out to be other dinosaur tracks so when a dinosaur leaves its track behind you see the really obvious track on the upper layer of the sand that they're stepping on or the mud but then right. they leave really um, kind of faint almost shapeless tracks underneath those layers and it was some of these shapeless tracks that I think a lot of people were trying to claim were human tracks um, yeah, I would love it if humans and dinosaurs lived at the same time, but they, it is absolutely not true. And uh, we're, we're seeing less, fewer and fewer claims of it. A lot of those claims yeah. have been debunked. Um, but that's, yeah, that's a big myth I'd love to be able to debunk. Well, that leads into my next question. This is the last question, then we can move into some of the extinction stuff. But is it is it possible that we could recreate a dinosaur so we potentially could live with dinosaurs in the future? Or is all of that just a uh, cinematic myth? Yeah, so um, the dinosaur scientist I was talking about earlier, um, Jack Horner, the one who collaborated with Steven Spielberg, um, yeah. he was convinced that it might be possible genetically to sort of re-engineer um, or de-engineer a, a dinosaur. Uh, he had a postdoc working with a postdoctoral researcher working with him for a few years, trying to figure out how to um, sort of genetically modify chicks and other birds in an effort to perhaps bring back dinosaurs. Um, some of this work, I think, was burned on by the fact, by the discovery that you can um, genetically engineer chicks to produce teeth. So the gene to make teeth in a chick embryo is still there. So birds lost their teeth millions of years ago, but the mm -hmm. genetic blueprint to make those teeth is still there in mm -hmm. a chick embryo. All you have to do is turn it on and you can produce a modern chick with teeth in its beak which is kind of trippy to think about yeah, and true. so that discovery got a lot of people thinking well maybe we can um, simply turn on a few other genes like is there a gene for a bony tail that we can turn back on is there a gene for some of these other um, evolutionary novelties that dinosaurs have that we could just turn back on again and and go from there it did not turn out to be the case it turns out that a lot of that genetic information has been lost 
in the you know intervening tens of millions of years and they had a little bit of success but they certainly weren't able to re-engineer a dinosaur um as for the original jurassic park premise the idea that you can take mosquito yeah the mosquito <laughs> the ancient hasn't worked out so well so um we've discovered that in the early years after jurassic park came out a lot of scientists attempted to um, sequence DNA going back to the Mesozoic. We've now discovered that almost all of the DNA that they sequenced was contaminants. Some of it was actually contaminants from the scientists themselves. Um, I think the farthest we can push back ancient DNA now is a couple million years. So mm -hmm. we can get at ancient DNA of Ice Age mammals okay. and that sort of thing. But we can't go far enough back. Um, so that suggests that we could potentially recreate a woolly mammoth or something like that? Sure. And there, there are actually a group of scientists, um, I believe in Russia, that have contemplated Pleistocene Park. So Pleistocene <laughs> is, the, is the geologic time period for the Ice Age, and they've contemplated trying to bring back some of these giant Ice Age mammals. There are huge ethical issues associated with that, right? Um, yeah, humans yeah. playing God and, and that sort of thing. So I, I would... I would basically say that the vast majority of, of scientists would not be supportive of that, but um, there are folks that have talked about it. Interesting. Okay, yeah, so let's move into the extinction stuff. Um, so first, just uh, talk about some general features about the extinction, then move into some of your research. So this is known as, this is the extinction that took place at the end of the Cretaceous, right, that killed off most of the dinosaurs. It's, it's known as the KT extinction that and it took place around 65 million years ago and it made so the, the name of it is shifted a little okay. bit so um it yes. used to be called the kt and the k stood for cretaceous and the t stood for tertiary and those were two time intervals that it spanned um in recent years the geological community has gone from calling one of the time intervals the tertiary the t to the paleogene the p so now we call it the kpg or the Cretaceous Paleogene extinction. Same extinction, same time interval, slightly different name, just to make it easier for geologists around the world to refer to the same events. Right. And so the most popular theory about what caused this extinction is the bolide impact. It is. Is it, is it the case, and I, so I want to get further into that, but is it the case that there are other causes as well? In reviewing the notes again, it said there are other causes that people entertain, like traditional causes such as volcanism, dinosaur-related causes such as disease, are those contributing factors here? And if they are, how big of a role do they play? So, um, the, so the KPG extinction was was known for a long time. It was one of the main extinctions that William Smith used to divide up the geologic timescale. Mm. And so, for many many years, I would say all the way up until the 70s. Um, a lot of dinosaur scientists were trying to figure out why the dinosaurs went extinct. They were just focusing on the extinction of the dinosaurs. They weren't thinking about the fact that, um, you know, over 75% of other organisms went extinct in the oceans and on land. And so the early thoughts of why the dinosaurs went extinct, a lot of them had to do with mammals eating their eggs or dinosaurs experiencing some kind of disease. We've, we've debunked all of that. Um, and now, folks are, are really focused on environmental explanations that can knock out huge amounts of diversity both on land and in the oceans. So um, I guess in the 70s, we had the suggestion that volcanism might have played a role. There's a big flood basalt. So there's a big eruption that occurs at about the same time. 
Uh, it's called the Deccan Traps, and um, it occurs in India. And we know that there are some other extinction events, there are some other events in geologic time that seem to correlate with these big flood basalts. And so there's a particular paleontologist, Gerda Keller, at Princeton, and a number of her students that have been a really big advocate of arguing that the Deccan Traps are correlated um, in some causal way with the KPG mass extinction. I would say that that's probably the minority view. Um, I'd say that the vast, um, the vast majority of dinosaur scientists ascribed the idea that a bolide or some sort of extraterrestrial object caused the extinction. So starting in 1980, um, a scientist by the name of Walter Alvarez, who was at Berkeley, he found um, evidence to suggest that some sort of extraterrestrial event um, had happened across this boundary. Um, he was doing his PhD work in uh, Gubbio in Italy at the boundary section, and he discovered that across the KPG boundary, there's a huge amount of iridium, and iridium is an element that only originates extraterrestrially. And so he, he discovered a huge amount of this, and he speculated that you know perhaps a supernova or some kind of a bolide impact had occurred. Um, a few years later, people started finding evidence that it was in fact an impact and not a supernova. So supernovas produce particular lead isotopes in sediments that weren't um, weren't available across this boundary. And people were finding um, lots of different examples of, of um, evidence that you would expect from a bolide impact. So tiny pieces of vaporized um, quartz, big droplets of molten and then cooled um, rocks, uh, things called uh, shocked quartz. So they were finding these in and around and the search was on for a big crater. So I'd say most of the 90s was spent in the KPG world with people trying to trying to test this bolide hypothesis and trying to find evidence for a crater. In the early 90s, that crater was discovered. Um, a crater of the right age and the right size was discovered off of the Yucatan Peninsula. Chicxulub? Um, yep, it's the Chicxulub crater. Mm -hmm. And we know that that caused tsunamis all around Texas and the Caribbean. We know it was responsible for some of these vaporized pieces of mineral and some of these shocked quartz. And so um, I think there's, I, I think the vast majority of dinosaur scientists would, would argue that um, the KPG is due to the bolide impact, but exactly how it worked, whether it was the cloud of dust or the acid rain or the climate change that resulted from that impact, you know, what the, the proximate driver was, what the specific cause was beyond that impact, um, I think we're still trying to figure out and why some groups like the birds and the crocodiles survived and other groups like the dinosaurs, why they went extinct is still is still up in the air. Yeah, some of the environmental consequences from this bolide impact are just horrifying. I mean, this is like <laughs> literally synonymous with the apocalypse. Tsunamis, wildfires, giant dust clouds, acid rain. I mean, it says, I don't know if this is correct, so correct me if it's wrong, but it says that the, the power of the impact is equivalent to the power of 100 million H-bombs. Yep. Is that right? Yeah, it was a very bad day to be, <laughs> on, planet, to be on planet Earth. So, um, you know, I think the last 10 years people have, have spent trying to find evidence of the after effect of the, the impact. Were there wildfires? Um, you know, was there a dust cloud? Was there acid rain? And if there was, how much 
how much evidence would be left behind in the geologic record for us to find. Um, we know that productivity in the oceans shut down for about 300,000 years. Um, what does that so, mean exactly? So it means that basically plankton weren't photosynthesizing in the oceans. The food webs collapsed in the oceans for a good long time, about 300,000 years. Obviously, there must have been places on the planet where you know, various different marine animals were able to survive. There must have been refuges, um, but we haven't found them yet, and we're not really sure where to look. I'd like to move into some of your research now and just kind of like go over a few papers that you've done or helped write when it comes to extinction. That sounds good. Um, the first one that I skimmed is called The KT Event and Infinality, Morphological and Ecological Patterns of Extinction. Or sorry, no, that's not that's not actually the first one I wanted to cover. The first one I wanted to cover, we'll get to that one. It's called <laughs> Abundance Not Linked Abundance Not Linked to Survival Across the End Cretaceous Mass Extinction. Patterns in North American Bifels. I thought this was very interesting. So just to read a brief passage from the abstract, you say, and uh, your colleagues that you wrote this with, I think this was multi-authored. Um, ecological studies suggest that rare taxa are more likely to go extinct than abundant ones. But the influence of abundance on survivorship in the fossil record has received little attention. So you engage in a study here, and what you end up finding is that fossil abundance data for late Mastrinian bivalves from North America indicates Say it quickly and with confidence. <laughs> yeah. Mastrinian bivalves from North America indicates that abundant taxa are no more likely to survive mass extinctions than rare ones. So I, I think I understand the basic idea here. Um, maybe not. But it, so I guess first, what exactly do you mean by abundant taxa versus rare taxa? Is that just how many of the particular mm -hmm. species that we're talking about? Yeah, it's just another word for population size. Just another word for population size. Okay, yeah. So intuitively, it would seem that um, I guess it intuitively makes sense to me that a rarer species or a species that has a smaller population size would be more vulnerable to extinction just because there are a fewer number of them. And But what's more important, how rare you are or how um, broadly distributed you are geographically? So mm. that's part of what I'm trying to get at is okay. if you want to be extinction proof, you if you're an organism and you want to predict whether you're extinction proof, what's more important, how broadly distributed you are across the landscape or how much of you, how many of you? there are in your population. Okay. So can you just explain the analysis that you conducted in further detail and the implications that you think that analysis suggests? Sure. So, um, I mean, I'll start off by saying that my, uh, my research interests are really in sort of death and destruction in the fossil record. Uh, yeah. I'm really interested. In, yeah. I'm really <laughs> interested in um, when things have gone horribly wrong, what organisms survive and how ecosystems bounce back. And most of the work I've done has focused on um, ancient oceans. So I'm, I'm specifically interested in things like shellfish and how they bounce back from global warming, from um, ocean anoxia, from acidification, um, and even from human overharvesting. And so uh, extinction is kind of the, the, I guess, the common thread through a lot of the work I do. Um, the paper that you're talking about was one of the first papers I, I published on extinction. Um, and it's focusing on the KPG and it's basically asking the question, can we predict, knowing what we have in the fossil record, can we predict what was gonna survive that extinction event? Um, so we've already talked about some of the effects of the KPG. We know it was sort of 
worldwide disaster in the oceans and on land, is it predictable given the different traits of organisms? Because if that's the case, and we can compare that environmental change back then to some environmental change now, you can start to predict what organisms would be more likely to survive, what organisms um, would be easier to restore in terms of restoration ecology, which ones would, might be harder. And so I was basically interested in this, in this idea of rarity. There are lots of different ways as an animal you can be rare. So you can have very few individuals in a population. You can have um, a really widespread population geographically. You can have lots of little populations or one big population. There are all sorts of different ways um, that species kind of divvy themselves up on the landscape, or in this case, I guess, on the seascape. Right. And I wanted to know if those differences had any effect on the likelihood of these organisms surviving a big mass extinction. Um, at that time, there's a big hypothesis that a lot of us were testing that mass extinctions were random, that what we call background extinction, the extinctions that happen constantly in time, the background extinctions would be predictable, but that mass extinctions were completely random and that survival of mass extinctions was all down to luck, good luck mm -hmm. or bad luck. And so that was part of what I was looking at is we know that um, abundance is linked to surviving in background extinctions. Is that the case in mass extinctions too? And you found that it wasn't the case in mass extinctions. It wasn't the case, right. And so there, I mean, there are two possible reasons for that. One is that the rules are different, that when you kill off 75% of species, it doesn't really matter how fit you are. It's not survival of the fittest, it's survival of the luckiest. That's one possible interpretation. The other possible interpretation is that our measures of abundance of population size are so biased in the fossil record that we're not measuring it accurately. So say, for example, that um, population size only matters when you get below 500 individuals or below 100 individuals, those species are probably not recorded in the fossil record. So species that are really, really rare probably never even make it into the fossil record. So is the bias, is the preservation in the fossil record such that we can't actually get at that question? So two possible interpretations. Do you have any inclination as to which of those interpretations is correct, whether it is survival of the luckiness of the luckiest or whether it's some bias in the way that you suggest? Or uh, you just you don't know? So the record that I was studying, um, and I should point out that I was um, I was building on work that two U.S. Geologic Survey paleontologists had done for many, many decades. They had sampled sort of the two million year chunk of time leading up to the KPG from New Jersey all the way to Texas. And they had sampled it with quite literally millions of specimens and many, many, many years in the field. And so I was working with a data set that was actually, I think, one of the highest quality data sets we have in paleontology. Again, I was borrowing it. Um, <laughs> I was publishing on it, but it wasn't a data set that I had put together. Given the high quality aspects of this data set, I think if there were, um, if there was a data set that was likely to be well sampled, it would be this one. It doesn't mean that sampling bias isn't having an effect, but this was a pretty well sampled data set with pretty good preservation. So some of those shellfish were so well preserved that you could still see color bands on them, even though they were, you know, 66 million years old. Um, yeah. Given that, I think it's likely that this was a really bad time to be on the east coast of North America. Remember that bolide was hitting right in the Yucatan. That tsunami was washing over Texas, you know, probably all the way to Alabama. Um, and 
in those sorts of conditions, the likelihood of being able to predict who goes extinct, I think that sort of goes out the window. The survival of the luckiest hypothesis is interesting to me because it suggests that mass extinctions just kind of shatter the logic of Darwinian evolution. And it's just like, even if you've built up all this evolution to become more fit, doesn't matter. Sorry. Yep. Like, sorry for all your hard work. And so my thesis advisor is Dave Jablonski, who's at the University of Chicago, and, and much of his career has been built on him arguing exactly that, that mass extinctions sort of, they reset the clock evolutionarily, they shift the direction that evolution is going in. Um, that's sort of the, the basis of a lot of his career. And one of his colleagues, David Raup, wrote a beautiful book. It's, it's a little dated now, but a beautiful book in the early 90s called Extinction, Bad Genes or Bad Luck. And that's that book is really getting at the heart of the question you're you're asking. Um, right. Can we predict extinction and to what extent is, is it truly survival of the fittest when you have these really massive events that kill off so much of biodiversity? So this might get into some other work that you've done where you talk about um, how species have evolved based upon extinction versus re recovery events. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, in one study you talk, or you do a couple studies where you're dealing with what are called veneroid bivalves. Yep. And my understanding, so I'm, I'm looking at the, the K2 event and infinality, morphological and ecological patterns of extinction, recovery, and veneroid bivalves, that paper. So my understanding is you have these veneroid bivalves, they undergo all these morphological and ecological changes after this mass extinction event. And there's a question, are these changes due to the extinction event itself, or are they due to the recovery period that followed the extinction event? Um, my understanding is that the research that you've done suggests that the latter is the case, that most of it is due to the recovery period. Is that a quasi-correct interpretation? Yeah, that was a great summary. I'll hire you to, to write my summaries. That was a great summary. <laughs> um, so at the time I was doing that work, there was a lot of interest in these um, intervals of biotic recovery. So biotic recovery is defined as the interval of time it takes after an extinction event for biodiversity to bounce back. Mm. Um, and there, there hadn't been a whole lot of work done on that in the 90s and the early thousands. And I was really interested in kind of the macroevolutionary effect of these um, of these recovery intervals. So a lot of people have studied whether mass extinctions changed the evolution of different organisms. So we know, for example, if it wasn't for the end Permian mass extinction, then dinosaurs probably wouldn't have evolved. And if it wasn't for the end Cretaceous mass extinction, mammals probably wouldn't have radiated. So we, we know these big extinctions are important macroevolutionarily. I wanted to look at the flip side, the interval of time that organisms are repopulating the seas, and I wanted to ask if that was important. And for the particular group of clams that I studied, these are these are clam chowder clams. If you've ever eaten like, I don't know, clam strips or clam chowders, you've eaten a veneroid bivalve, you just didn't know it. They're also called venus clams. And for these venus clams, they are some of the most abundant and the most diverse and the most successful clams in the ocean today. They've been around for over 300 million years, but they didn't really radiate until after the KPG extinction. So I wanted to know um, basically why they were successful. Was it the extinction itself that helped them radiate or was it the recovery? And, and what I found is that the extinction was random. So we talked a little bit about this. That's bad luck. Again, the extinction was random and their right. veneroids got hit really hard in the extinction. The recovery wasn't random. So the recovery was really biased and the veneroids 
um, radiated much faster than a lot of their competitors. They radiated into new ecological niches, sort of burrowing more deeply um, and diversifying faster than the other shellfish. Um, and that's a lot of the reason why they were successful, um, is their response to the extinction. It's a little bit like resiliency. We talk about people having resiliency when bad things happen in their lives. It's a matter yeah. of who bounces back fastest, earliest, and uh, most successfully from the big mass extinction. Right. Yeah, so another thing that's interesting to me is just how this understanding of how species bounce back in the past and how extinctions worked in the past can inform our understanding of how these things might occur in the future. So you have one paper, which I thought was fascinating, called Extinctions in Ancient and Modern Seas. And you note that in the coming century, life in the ocean will be confronted with a whole suit of environmental conditions that have no analog in human history. So kind of looking forward, I guess now, what is the current extinction risk when it comes to marine species and what are the main threats to marine species today? Sure. So um, I think a lot of a lot of scientists would argue that we're in the middle of what they call a sixth mass extinction. So there are five big mass extinctions. Well, depending on who you talk to, four or three. There are a whole series of big mass extinctions in the fossil record. And a lot of people have argued that we're in the middle of a, another big one as a result of um, human disturbance and human driven climate change. Um, in the ocean specifically, we seem to know less about what's happening with the extinction than we do on land because it's harder to observe, right? And we haven't observed um, what's normal in the oceans for a very long time. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, these days I would argue that uh, there are several main drivers to extinction. So in the oceans in general, climate change is a big one. So climate change is driving acidification. Acidification is when seawater becomes slightly acidic. And slightly acidic doesn't sound like a bad thing, but when you are a shellfish or you are coral and you build your shell or your reef out of calcium carbonate, a little bit of acid can destroy that calcium carbonate. So the larva of a lot of marine species is really suffering right now with climate change and with ocean acidification. Um, if you look a little closer to the coastlines, we have additional problems. So anoxia is a really common problem in um, lots of bays and in sort of shallow inlets. Um, anoxia, as a result of algal blooms, is killing off a lot of the organisms that live on the, the bottom of the bays and live right next to the coastlines. Um, and then overfishing. So humans are overfishing really across the globe. It's, it's worst along the coastlines because we've been there the longest. Um, but with overfishing also often comes things like introduced diseases, other introduced species. Um, those are all the different drivers of modern extinction that I would point to in the oceans. I think I hit them all. So yeah. climate change, acidification, anoxia, overfishing, um, introduced disease and introduced species. Another question on this that I wanted to slip in there is, is it true? I, I think you mentioned in the paper that marine species are typically more evolutionarily resilient than land species? They, uh, they, is that true? Why, why is that? Yeah, so they appear to be in the fossil record. So when you look at extinction in the fossil record, it takes land organisms longer to bounce back. It takes um, ecological communities on land longer to bounce back. Um, I don't know to what extent it's because of how photosynthesis works on land versus in the oceans. 
So plankton can move really, really right. fast from one part of the global ocean to another as a result of ocean currents. With plants, with terrestrial plants, it takes longer, right? So terrestrial plants rely on winds. They rely on animals to move their pollen um, and to move their propagules around. The ocean is like a ready-made system for moving photosynthesizers around. So I would think, you know, purely intuitively, it would be easier to get a food web going again in the oceans after mass yeah. destruction than it would be on land. Um, but there's been, it's, a, it's a great question, actually. I don't think there's much in the literature about, about how and why that's the case. Based upon what you've said, it seems to me that planktons are the plants of the sea and that they, they kind of serve as the I mean, foundation. There are actually of plants in the sea too, right? So there are seagrasses <laughs> and that sort of thing. Um, but a lot of photosynthesis is driven by plankton. So tiny planktonic organisms that can photosynthesize and they're the base of the marine food chain. Right. Okay, so I just got one more question for you. I know you've been very generous with yeah. your time. Thank you. Um, so this is, you've done some research recently on uh, sexual uh, dimorphism and sexual selection and and, and how that relates to extinction. So another article that I skimmed here high, is called High Male Sexual Investment as a Driver of Extinction in Fossil Ostracodes. And you know that there are kind of two competing models here. Um, one model says that sex, sexual selection can actually increase the chance of, of extinction. The other model says that sexual selection should increase rates of ad adaptation and therefore decrease the chance of extinction. And in the study that you conducted, your findings suggest that, um, at least as it applies to ostracodes, that um, it actually does increase the chances of extinction. You 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 talk about how um, I think species which are more sexually dimorphic have a greater risk of extinction. So I guess first, mm -hmm. could you just define some of those terms for the listeners? Sexual selection, sure. sexual dimorphism, and then talk about the study that you conducted? Sure. Um, yeah, there's a lot of vocab going on there. So yeah. um, I want you to start by thinking about peacocks. So okay. think about the bird, the peacock. Um, the males look really different from the females. And anytime you have a species where the males and the females look very different, we call that sexual dimorphism. So it's like sexual two body plans, sexual dimorphism. And so in peacocks, for example, we know that the males have really big, really bright tail plumage. And it turns out that the females tend to choose males on the basis of how big that plumage is, but also how brightly colored it is, and even in some cases, how symmetrical it is. It turns out having a bigger, brighter tail helps a male, um, helps a peacock <clears throat> to uh, get mates and to reproduce. So they're more likely to pass their genes on to the next generation if they have a bigger, brighter tail. The flip side to the tail is that it also makes you more likely to be preyed upon. So peacocks can be preyed upon by a whole variety of different predators. Think of um, dogs and various different kinds of canids. Um, that tail makes it really hard to run and really hard to take off. So ironically, some of those peacocks with the biggest, brightest tails are also the most obvious and the easiest to catch for predators. So it makes them more evolutionarily fit, but it has an evolutionary cost as well? Yeah, so I'm not sure. It's sort of it's it's sort of an intermediate, right? It makes them less likely to survive predation, but it makes them more likely to reproduce. And right, so right. the extent to which sort of sexual selection versus just plain natural selection is affecting that population, that might, you know, that might determine 
the evolutionary success of peacocks. And so this is a this is a question that people have wondered about for a long time. We know that in modern birds, those birds that are sexually dimorphic, so think about things like um, uh, cardinals, where the male and the female look really different from each other. Um, we know that sexually dimorphic birds today are more likely to be endangered. But fortunately for us, extinction isn't happening so fast that we can test the hypothesis in the modern. We can't go and ask a cardinal, you know, you're sexually dimorphic, are you about to go extinct? Um, but we can ask that question in the fossil record. So um, my colleagues and I, um, including Gene Hunt at the Smithsonian, we um, looked at a bunch of different study organisms for this study. Um, things like dinosaurs are sexually dimorphic, but it's really difficult to, to study them in the fossil record because they don't have a very good sample size. Um, shellfish like ammonites, they're close relatives of nautilus. They're also dimorphic, um, but it's really difficult to tell which is the male and the female. Um, we settled on ostracods, and ostracods are these tiny microscopic crustaceans. I think of them as tiny shrimp with a little clamshell around them. They are closely related to shrimp. They are not closely related to clams. And Gene Hunt studies them. Um, they are you know, slightly smaller than a sesame seed, mm. but they look a little bit like a, a sesame seed. And so the great thing about ostracods is that a lot of them are dimorphic. Some of them are, some of them aren't. And you can tell um, when you find one in the fossil record, whether it's male or female, you can also tell whether it's a juvenile or adult. So it was this great study system to be able to ask this question. And we collaborated with a guy named Mark Puckett in Alabama who had dedicated his life to um, collecting ostracods of a certain age, um, sort of late Cretaceous ostracods, looking at a background extinction. So we could use his collections and we could actually quantify this. We could ask the question, if you are sexually dimorphic, are you more likely or less likely to go extinct? And so we're testing this question of being, is being sexually dimorphic, does it have an evolutionary cost to mm -hmm. it? And we found at least for this interval of time, for these ostracods, that it, it does. Um, and that's, it's interesting because it means that selection's operating in a slightly different way than we often think of it. We often think of sexual selection or you know, any kind of natural selection happening at the at the level of the individual, an individual can't be sexually dimorphic, but a population can. Right. So that means that these populations and these species of ostracods that are dimorphic are more likely to go extinct. So. And it, just to clarify, we're talking about background extinction events, not mass extinction events. Yeah. So we're, we're expanding the work and um, Jean and one of our our collaborator, Joao, who's a Portuguese paleobiologist, um, they're looking at patterns across the KPG. So we are hoping to expand it all the way into a mass extinction interval. Um, but for now, we've looked at it in background extinction. And the more sexually dimorphic you are, the more likely you are to go extinct. Wow. That's cool. The more time and energy a, a species puts into sex, the more likely it is to go extinct. Wow. It's just... Uh it's almost like paradoxical in a sense because you would think like oh this animal um is more likely to pass down its genes to the next generation which is a mm -hmm. good thing but then you have to you take in the predation concerns that you've been talking about into account well and it's not just predation so you know it, it's, it's possible that that there are other drivers right that that make it less likely um you know for these for these things to survive there's some cost associated with these sort of sexually selected traits um but it's a really cool question. It's a beautiful study system to work with. It was the first time I'd ever worked on ostracods, um, and they're not quite as cool as as dinosaurs or oysters, but they're they're pretty cool. 
Well, that's all I got for you. Um, thank you for your time. I found this to be a very fascinating educational conversation and I, I appreciate it. Yeah, you're very welcome. It's great to touch base again.